should the Jets do in free agency? How much does the combine matter? How big of a problem is Woody Johnson? We'll discuss all of this and more on today's episode of the Locked On Jets podcast. You are Locked On Jets, your daily New York Jets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome. This is the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day is our motto, and it is Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. I'm your host, John B. from gangreennation.com. Thank you for making this show your first listen or your first watch every day. We are free and available on all platforms, including YouTube. If you like what you see or hear, hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode. If you're watching on YouTube, give this episode a thumbs up. It helps the channel out. It'll help other Jets fans find this podcast. Today we have our weekly mailbag. Each Wednesday we try and do a mailbag with listener questions. Let's jump right in. Our first question is about free agency and the draft. When you're a bottom-dwelling team like the Jets, do you think a philosophy, for example, of targeting defense and free agency and drafting offense helps build quicker? Or maybe a philosophy of buying in free agency position groups that are low income towards the cap and drafting high income position groups? Well, that's a great question. I think a lot of it depends on the specifics of your situation. I think it depends on who's available. Sometimes the board that you wish was there is not the board that you that is actually there. So it depends on the specifics. I think one thing is you cannot get yourself set in the mindset that this is the only way to build. There are many different ways to build in the NFL. I do think you need some sort of plan, though. I think you have to have some sort of plan of attack. I, last week I wrote an article, and I looked at essentially every major jet signing in free agency of the last decade. And there were a few themes that were recurring. One of them is that the Jets have been horrible, and I mean absolutely horrible, when they have given out huge money deals. Then I'm talking the Truman Johnson deals, bringing back Darrell Revis in 2015, Le'Veon Bell, even C.J. Mosley really hasn't worked out. C.J. Mosley's probably been the best of them, and that run really hasn't worked out. He had a decent year this past year, but he missed the previous two years. It's not always the player's fault. But also, interestingly, when we get past the big money deals, maybe that, like, second tier, the Jets have done very well. You know, they got Kelvin Beecham a few years back. They signed Eric Decker, Jamison Crowder's in that group. Connor McGovern, George Fant, there are lots of success stories in that second tier. So, I mean, I think that that's one of the lessons is when you spend at the top of free agency, sometimes it just doesn't work out because the guys who are really the, the star level players tend to get re-signed by their original team. And if not, then they get traded so the original team gets something in return. So maybe that's one lesson. Another thing that was kind of clear is the Jets have had a lot more success Signing players at the non-premium positions, there were not many success stories at tackle or wide receiver or quarterback or corner or edge rusher. Meanwhile, there were a lot more successes at like positions like safety. The one exception is running back. The Jets have been horrible at signing running backs in recent years. I mean, lots of big names have come in. So that's another lesson. The third lesson that I think you could take away is that when the Jets have signed young players, they actually haven't been awful. But when the Jets have signed old players, and the, the cutoff point was 28. It was amazing to me how... The Jets did not have necessarily a spectacular record at signing players 28 and younger, but it was a lot better. I mean, a lot better than signing. The Jets almost had no successes when they signed players of significance who were older than 28 years old. So those are a couple of broader points. But aside from that, you kind of have to look at the situation. I think like for the Jets are, I mentioned this in last week's mailbag. 
I almost would probably lean towards being aggressive on the offensive side of the ball in free agency because it seems like, first of all, that a lot of the talent in the draft, the top-end talent where the Jets are going to be picking in the top 10, it seems like it leans more towards the defensive side of the ball. There are some offensive players who would be credible picks, but it seems like defense is more likely in those positions. And on the offensive side of the ball, you I feel like you want more experience around Zach Wilson. I feel like you don't want a... a, a offense full of young players because you got got you got to have guys who know what they're doing this is not going to be a team where the quarterback's really going to be directing traffic and that's true of pretty much whenever you have a second year quarterback that's not like a zach wilson thing that's just i think true in general you got to have veteran guys in there so that the quarterback doesn't need to tell them you know this is what you need to do you have to have guys who already know what they're going to do in the case of a blitz so that's kind of where my mindset is i think like in general you tend to want to stay out of the top of the market not every team has been as unsuccessful as the Jets. I'm not saying that there's a 0% chance you're going to hit on a free agent signing if you sign guys at the top of the market, but it's awfully risky. The reason it's awfully risky is that you're kind of pricing these deals to perfection. You're essentially paying these guys to be star-level players. So if they're star-level players, well, that's what you're paying for. It's not really a bargain. And if they aren't star-level players, well, then you got a big problem on your hands. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate how much the environment affects player performance. When you're bringing in a player from another team, there are a lot of unknowns. He's not getting the same coaching. He may be put in a totally different system than he was in the past. You know, he may not be as good of a fit in the, in the locker room as he was in his old team. There's just a lot that's unknown. I think sometimes we don't appreciate that. So I tend to think you just try and stay out to the best you can. And part of this is, again, because the truly elite players usually don't hit free agency. And that's why Devontae Adams is kind of an interesting case this year. This is the rare instance where a truly elite-level player actually might hit the market. And he's a guy who plays a premium position. You know, some of the other guys, like I, I mentioned Marcus Williams a lot, who I think would be a really good fit. Now, I don't want to go crazy with Marcus Williams. If we're talking about Marcus Williams on a deal around $20 million a year, that might be the point where I say, well, let's get out of that one. Let's not do that one. But I think it is probably a bit easier to find guys at non-premium positions in free agency, the truly elite players, if they play a non-premium position, because there's some really good teams that kind of have to prioritize. Sometimes you can't keep everybody. So if you have to keep a great player at a premium position like wide receiver or a non-premium position like safety, then you may let the non-premium player go. So I think like to the extent premium players hit free agency, it probably happens a little bit more often at the non-premium positions. So that could be an area to look at. And another thing to consider is what the Jets' defensive scheme is, because we don't know entirely what they want to do, but this could be the type of scheme where you're relying more on linebackers and safeties than you are corners, which is a bit unconventional in today's NFL. But if that's the way your defense runs, that's a bit of a market inefficiency because great linebackers and great safeties usually don't cost as much as great corners. So maybe you get some surplus value there and you may want to invest in linebackers and safeties and free agency to an extent you might not if your defense was corner based. So, you know, a lot of this depends on your own situation, your, the specifics of your situation I think the most important thing, though, is to have a strategy. And yes, that strategy should include sparingly. I'm not going to say you never dip into the top of the market, but I think you should do it sparingly. I think you should do it conservatively. I think you really got to be careful because there's not a lot of surplus value in those top-end free agents. But beyond that, it's more about the specifics, the specifics of your team, what your plan is, what you're trying to accomplish, and who's available. Again, sometimes the board that's there is not the board that you wish was there. You know, this year is a market where it seems like safety positions 
pretty good. I mean, there are a couple of guys who lay like Marcus Williams is going to hit the market. Kyle Hamilton's going to be there in the top of the first round. It would be better for the Jets if there were lots of edge rushers available, but this might be a year where maybe you focus more on safeties. And if the Jets' defensive scheme is morphing into something that's more linebacker and safety dependent than corner dependent, that might be an opportunity for them to take advantage of. So I think more than anything, you just got to have a plan. It's, and the specifics of that plan are not necessarily as significant. Next question. Everybody points to the Bengals going from worst to first, but I think their team was really differently constructed than ours. It's going to be difficult for the Jets to follow that path. The Bengals had skilled players at positions like wide receiver, running back, and tight end. So, John, what can us fans actually take from the Bengals' quick rise that would fit what the Jets have? Are there any tangible similarities, or is this all just a dream? I, I don't think the Bengals' path is necessarily realistic for the Jets. I don't think that they're going to necessarily be in the Super Bowl next year. I don't think that that's really a realistic hope for the Jets. Here are the things that I think you can take from the Bengals. First of all, I think in the NFL, there's this mindset that the only way you can build a team is you have to only address the positions you're weak at. And we know the Bengals did not really do that in the first round last year. I can't tell you how many different people I saw say they got to take Sewell in the first round. You got to take the tackle. They're fine at receiver. Don't take Jamar Chase. I can't even remember. I may have said that too. I'm embarrassed if I did. I feel like I feel like I don't remember exactly what I said. I feel like I may have said that. What happened? The Bengals took Jamar Chase. Sometimes improving the position where you're either okay or already good at, sometimes turning the position where you're okay at or good at into a position where you're great at is a good way to build your team. Beyond that, I mean, I think it's, you have to see the importance of the quarterback position. Joe Burrow really carried that team. And, you know, I don't know if Zach Wilson having a year like Joe Burrow just had is realistic. I hope Zach Wilson improves, though. It shows you the importance of the quarterback position. That's another lesson. Beyond that, though, I mean, the Bengals were kind of ahead of schedule this year. They were kind of a flawed team. They were not a complete team. I think they were maybe a year or two ahead of schedule. This was not really a, the type of team that you would expect to go to the Super Bowl. They were a decent team that got hot at the right time. The parts that were kind of weak started playing well in the playoffs. And I think, as much as anything, it shows you, first of all, that turnarounds can happen very quickly in the NFL. But second, you don't necessarily need a complete team to make the playoffs. And once you get into the playoffs, anything can happen. You may just get hot at the right time. So these are all things to consider. I think sometimes we think, well, the Jets have to fix this, 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 and this, and this before they even have a chance of making the playoffs. And that's not necessarily true. You can be a flawed team and make the playoffs. Bengals had some issues on the defensive side of the ball this year. It did not prevent them from having a winning record. Maybe it prevented them from being a team that won 13 games. Maybe it prevented them from being a one seed. Maybe it prevented them from having a bye, playing a bunch of home games. But it did not prevent them from making the playoffs. And once they were in, they had a chance to, take a, to make a run. So as much as anything, maybe it shows that the Jets are not as far away as we thought. Maybe no team's really as far away as we think. You don't necessarily need to have all of your holes filled in order to be a good team in this league. There really are not that many complete teams in the NFL these days. So, and it also shows that, you know, sometimes, I think sometimes maybe we just resign ourselves to the Jets not being good and we make excuses when they're not. And we say that the guys running the team, we give them too much of a pass sometimes. I think the Jets need to make some moves this year. You know, beyond that, talk, just talking about free agency, I think everybody agrees the Bengals did a great job in free agency last year. Lots of talk has been, lots of attention has been paid to the defensive side of the ball. Well, look at the players they signed. They signed a lot of good players. They were not giving out huge money deals. This goes back to what I was saying in the first question. The biggest contract they gave out, the most guarantees, was Trey Hendrickson. He only got $16 million, which not a lot. Far less than the Jets gave Carl Lawson, far less than they gave Corey Davis in guarantees. Beyond that, Hendrickson was the only guy who got 
$8 million guaranteed or more. So they just found guys who were good values. And that's really what hitting on free agency is all about. In the early stages of free agency, you always hear about the team that won. It's always the team that made the splashiest signings, the biggest names, the biggest money deals. The team that really wins free agency, we don't know who it is in March. It's the team that gave out the reasonable contracts that actually worked out. We've seen the Jets give out deals over the last few years with Joe Douglas that were not necessarily huge money deals, but they haven't really worked out. We won't know until September, October, November, whether the deals Joe Douglas gives out are good deals. They could be. They could not be. But it shows that you don't always need to pay big money in free agency to be a winner in free agency. So that's another lesson. So I think there's plenty you can take away. I think that there are not a lot of similarities specifically between the Jets and Bengals, but the Bengals show you things that can be applied to any rebuilding team. So those are things that I think should be considered. Now, ahead here on the Lockdown Jets, we'll talk about the Combine. It's one of the most hotly debated topics among NFL fans. How important is it really? I'll offer some thoughts on that as we continue our weekly mailbag. Of course, the Combine approaching is a sign that football is over for this season, but basketball is in full steam for both pro and college hoops. And from all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, BetOnline.net is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. BetOnline remains the best spot for all of your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline.net is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds right to Olympic coverage and information. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. BetOnline, where the game starts. Thank you again for making Locked On Jets your first listen every day. The show is available and free on all platforms. Our next question. Another year, another combine. There's one aspect I find to be very misleading in the overall play of some draftees. They train for weeks to prepare to run fast at the combine. That speed follows them for the rest of their career, but it is actually misleading. In subsequent years, they never train to maintain it. If Jerry Rice ran a 4-5 or 4-6 in his rookie year, he ran it 10 years later. Meanwhile, guys who ran 4-3s or 4-4s could not catch him. He kept on training. They did not. Well, that's a really good point, and I think you got to be careful with the combine. I think that the combine has its uses. I used to think the combine was completely useless. I'm not sure I believe that anymore, but you have to remember that these drills are not done in pads. They're not happening in the context of a game. The types of drills you run in the combine, there's some degree of overlap. There's some ways in which the athleticism you either display or do not display overlaps with a football game, but it's not a direct one-to-one match. You know, Jerry Rice is a perfect example. He ran a very lousy 40 time, but the thing people did not consider is there's a difference between time to speed and football speed. Football speed, Jerry Rice was very fast because he was quicker off the snap than any receiver ever. So he essentially ran at a rate that was like as good as somebody who ran a 40 two tenths of a second faster. He, he was really fast because, and that's because he got a quicker start because he was fired off the ball so great. So those are things you have to consider. You have to put everything into context. And a good point is that these guys are really training for these events. These are kind of track and field events and they spend the weeks. They, they sometimes get coached up. They're essentially training specifically for these events, which aren't necessarily one-to-one with football. So these are things to really keep in mind as the combine progresses. It's not always a direct indication of what a player is capable of doing. You have to remember that the movements that happen in the combine are different from the movements that happen on a football field. Our next question, the combine can bring notice to players with raw potential that can either be coached into good players or turn into complete busts. Are there any key drills, workouts, trends, or little ins and outs that you've seen over the year that helped you realize a player will be a bust or a good player that have proven you correct? 
you know, I, I struggle to come up with any names, but again, I go with cautionary tales. I mean, I just remember Terrell Suggs. That was maybe the most famous case. He had ran a horrible 40, and people dropped him down their boards, and he went out, to, he got drafted by Baltimore and turned into a Hall of Fame player. So you got to be careful. I think it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, I think for smaller school prospects, there are things that can show you if a guy's if a guy played at a small school and you see him running away consistently, like he's a wide receiver, he's constantly running away from defensive backs against his opponents. There's a little question there. Is it really that he's that fast or are the opponents slow? So that's one thing to consider. But I mean, how much does it really matter? As much as anything, I kind of look at the combine as an elimination tool. You know, if you have a wide receiver who runs like a 4.8, it's not always one-to-one, but if you're running 4.8, in the 40, that's probably a sign you're not fast enough. That's probably a lack of speed manifesting itself. So you see this in, you see it in other areas too. And I mean, there are drills that tell you different things. There's straight line speed, which is not that important for the most part. I mean, there are a few positions, a few roles where straight line speed can really matter. Sometimes you're looking at the 10-yard split. I mean, there's some drills where you're looking how explosive is this guy in their movement. Sometimes you're looking how well they change direction. These things only matter so much, though. And I think as much as anything, like what the combine matters for are the interviews. Teams get to speak with players one-on-one typically, and they get a sense of, you know, they kind of get a sense of these guys. And that's not, you know, they, they also speak with them at the senior bowl. Sometimes they bring guys in. So I think the combines have become one of those things that's almost a little overrated if not a lot overrated, I think it matters, but I think you have to keep things in context. And I think sometimes people fail to keep these things in context. Our next question, should the Jets try and sign Dante Fowler to a deal around four or $5 million a year as a rotational pass rusher? So Dante Fowler was just let go by the Falcons, former Ram, former Jaguar. I have to say, I've never been a Dante Fowler fan, even when he was putting up some decent numbers with the Jaguars, when he's putting up decent numbers with the Rams. I never thought he was like a go-to pass rusher. I think with Jacksonville, he had success. He had an eight-sack season the year Jacksonville went to the AFC Championship game, but I think Yannick Ngakwe and Calais Campbell drove, drew a lot of attention from him with the Rams when he was having success. Aaron Donald was drawing attention. I would take him at 4 to $5 million a year for a situational role. I don't think I'd go much higher than that. I don't think I'd give him a bigger role, though. I don't think he's that good. So, listen, if he, if he wants to be a rotational guy, come in. That's fine. He's not the guy I'm putting across from Carl Lawson. So that's, that's pretty much where I draw the line as a kind of a backup, a rotational guy, maybe the role the Jets envisioned for Vinny Curry this year, I think he could be good at it. And if he comes at a moderate price, sure. But I would not go any bigger than that. Our next question, how good is George Fant? Do the low sack numbers hide a high pressure rate and poor run blocking? Well, listen, I think George Fant was a very important player for the Jets in 2021. When you lose your starting left tackle week one, it can destroy your football team. And Fant stepped in and provided the Jets with credible play at the left tackle position, which is really important. If you do not have a credible left tackle, it can destroy your team. It can destroy your offense. It can destroy your team. And I know the Jets went 4-13 and this year, but it's different when you don't have a left tackle. When you don't have a left tackle, your offense looks pathetic. I know the Jets had their moments this year, but George Fant, I think, was an important player. And it kind of came out of nowhere because that week one game against the Panthers, he was maybe the worst Jet on the field. And in 2020, he did not really have that good of a season. I know some people have the theory that he's a better left tackle than right tackle. I, I don't know how much I buy into that, but there's no question George Fant was important for this team. He's not exactly the same player in terms of style, but I kind of equate him in terms of quality to Kelvin Beecham. You know, Beecham was a guy who gave you credible pass blocking at the left tackle position and not much in the run game. That's kind of what Fant gave you this past season. 
he wasn't great. In fact, I think he maybe he wasn't as great as people make him out to be, but really important player. And I think like left tackle is one of those positions where the gap between a guy who's credible and guys who can't play is greater than the gap between elite and credible. I mean, listen, you'd rather have the top-notch left tackle than somebody who's just okay like Fance, but having Fance instead of somebody who can't play at all at left tackle, that's a huge difference. I mean, that's the difference between being able to operate, being able to function on offense, and not being able to function at all. So the Jets owe a debt of gratitude to Fance. Should he stay the left tackle? I mean, that's an interesting question. And the fact he's given, being given a chance to compete for the job, I almost view that as a sign the coaching staff is not entirely content with Mekhi Becton because Fant played well. I don't think he played well enough that you're thinking about moving the kid you drafted two years ago to be your franchise left tackle if you're happy with him. So maybe that's a sign, and that, I, there's no insider information. This is just pure speculation, but I wonder whether maybe this is a sign that they're not entirely thrilled with what Mekhi Becton's providing them. That's just my guess, though. Now, ahead here on the Lockdown Jets podcast, we'll finish our weekly mailbag show. We'll talk about Woody Johnson and his role with the team, in addition to some other stuff. That's ahead here on this mailbag Lockdown Jets podcast. You know, George Fant played so well for the Jets this past season that they may be looking to extend his contract. Unfortunately, they cannot give him Built Bars as part of a new contract. Built Bars is the best tasting protein bar on the market. They may be protein bars, but they taste like chocolate bars. They're covered in 100% real chocolate. There's so many delicious flavors. You've got banana cream pie. There's coconut marshmallow. There's a new flavor, Puffs. Puffs are the first ever protein-infused marshmallow. They're fluffy. They're marshmallowy. They are not just a protein bar. They're, they're a treat, and they're covered in 100% real ch- chocolate. Go to Built.com and scroll down the, the macros chart. You'll be blown away. High protein, low calorie, high fiber, low carb. Most bars contain 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. Compare that to a candy bar, which usually has around 240 calories, 30 grams of sugar, and dozens of net carbs. You got mint brownie, you got coconut, coconut almond, and new for this month, white chocolate cookies and cream. They're all delicious, and new flavors are coming out all the time. If they think a flavor might be good, they'll make it. It will be delicious, and it will be good for you. So go to Built.com and check out all their flavors. Again, that's Built.com, B-U-I-L-T.com for delicious Built Bars. This is the Locked On Jets podcast on this Wednesday mailbag show. Our next question, as much as we routinely get stuck in bad long-term free agent contracts, a lot of our problems stem from the fact Woody Johnson had a GM and head coach report to him separately, and in some instances the head coach was not even allowed to pick his own staff. I cannot think of the last time we did not have a mismatched regime. As much as you and I and others don't want to give Chris Johnson credit for maybe getting this right with a long-term deal, Joe Douglas is allowed to hire his own coach and the coach was allowed to hire his own staff. I do hope to finally see the Jets build out a roster to fit with a general manager, head coach, and staff based on scheme and fit. My concern is Woody returning. Do you think Woody Johnson will be Woody and Woody it all up on us again? Or can we have a functional organization and let this build out with the guys married at the hip longer term? So good question there. I do think there's a bit of a misconception, though, that the issue with the Jets has been that the head coach and general manager both reported to the owner. I think there's this conception among NFL fans that most teams have a structure where the GM is put in charge and hires everybody, and then the GM reports to the owner, the head coach reports to the GM. That's not necessarily the case. In fact, of the final four teams this year, none of them have that structure. I mean, across town, the Giants won four Super Bowls with a structure that was similar to the one the Jets employed, where the head coach and GM both report to ownership. So it's not necessarily that it can't work. I would 
say that I'm sympathetic to the argument that the best structure for the Jets is having the GM report directly to the owner. But you have to remember, there was a disconnect between Rex Ryan and John Idzik. The whole reason the Jets came up with that structure, both the GM and the head coach reporting to Woody Johnson, was that Idzik was kind of overplaying his hand. Idzik was kind of making decisions. I mean, he was, there was, and we don't know this for sure, but there were reasons to believe that like Rex Ryan could not even choose who the starting quarterback on his team was. And that's because Isaac was in charge. Isaac reported directly to the owner. So I think less than the structure, it's just more the GM and the head coach have not been on the same page for the Jets. Isaac and Ryan did not really work well together. And that manifests itself in many different ways. I mean, most notably, Isaac was not really getting the kind of players Rex needed. Didn't did not seem like there was great communication with them. Did not seem like they were working hand in hand to build a roster. Isaac was not getting the type of players Rex needed to run his schemes. You know, Bowles and McCagnan. Again, I mean, I mean, the perfect example of the disconnect there was Leonard Williams. The Jets dropped this guy, and they don't really have a spot for him, and they have to end up moving Sheldon Richardson around because they drafted this player who didn't really fit what they needed. So that was a good example. I mean, Gaze and McCagden, we saw what a disaster that was. I do think Douglas and Gaze probably worked together pretty well. It's just Gase was not a very good coach. But, yeah, I agree. And, you know, you said I don't want to give Chris Johnson credit. I actually give Chris Johnson a lot of credit for that. I think Chris Johnson, the way he operated in the offseason of 2021, he was a guy who I thought showed some humility, who understood that he made some mistakes in the past, who tried to fix what was wrong. I actually think Chris Johnson did things right in the offseason of 2021. And if Salah doesn't work out, it'll just be because the Jets hired the, the wrong coach. It's not going to be because the ownership was doing anything wrong. I think the Jets did do things right this time. It does seem like they finally have a GM and a head coach who are on the same page. So that's a very good thing. Now, where does Woody come into all of this? I mean, it's kind of interesting because Woody was not around when Salo was hired. He wasn't around when Douglas was hired. I mean, was he involved in those decisions? I mean, perhaps. But obviously, Chris Johnson was running the team. Woody was not running these, these interview processes. So these are not guys Woody hired, even though Chris presumably still has some sway in this organization. The things with Woody are, first of all, I don't think he really knows what he wants in an organization, and he's very easily swayed. I think one thing we've seen is that public opinion can sway him quite a bit. So if the Jets don't have a good season, he might be swayed. I mean, and the other thing is he's kind of erratic. I mean, he can be kind of insistent on certain things. There are instances where he met. He doesn't meddle in this from the standpoint like he's in the draft room overruling the first round pick the way some owners do, but he does meddle at times. You know, the Itzik hiring was a perfect example. Whoever got that job was going to have to keep a head coach they did not choose and did not have any say over. And they were also going to have to trade Darrell Rivas, who was the best player at the time, maybe the best player on defense in the entire league at the time. And it was it would be one thing if, like, you got the job as GM and you had a tr- chance to, like, think this over and you said, okay, probably best for the team we're rebuilding. Maybe we trade Rivas, get, see if we can get some draft picks in return. But that was not the case. GM had no say over that. So there are issues with Woody. I think you have to worry a little bit about it. I mean, I think if the team, especially if the team loses, who's getting in his ear? Is he, you know, is he going to say, well, I didn't really hire these guys? I think there is some concern over that. But then again, you know, if the team's not winning this year, we might need, it might be the right time to think about changes because we can't wait forever for this, for the Jets to put a credible football team on the field. But maybe a situation where they win six, seven games and you see, you're seeing real progress yet there's some discontent from the fan base, that might be the situation where maybe you worry a little bit. Jets win three games. There's going to be a lot of pressure. Maybe Woody will be swayed by it, but Jets win three games this year. It might be time to make a change anyway. That's how I see it. 
Anyway, that's all for our show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. This has been the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. As always, if you enjoy the show, subscribe to it. Leave it a good review if you're listening on a podcast source. Give this episode a thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. These will help other Jets fans find the show. Hope you have a great Wednesday, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow to talk more Jets.